Letter sixty six, part two, of the history of Lady Barton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The History of Lady Barton by Elizabeth Griffith. Letter sixty six, part two. Till that unhappy night, Guilt was a stranger to my suffering heart, and therefore I had never known remorse or fear. It was impossible to soothe my tortured soul to peace. The fond delusion of his prior right, both to my person and my heart, my former arguments of dissolved tie and transferred affections, appeared all but self-deceit in my present circumstances. The wretched sophistry vanished like a phantom from me, and in its room, the priest, the altar, all the awful scene where I had bound myself by solemn vows to be another's wife, now rushed upon me, and in the anguish of my heart I bitterly exclaimed against him as the prime source of all my misery, and bade him fly forever from my sight. Sir Thomas said everything that honour could dictate or love inspire to temper my emotions of grief and rage, threw himself at my feet, entreated me forgiveness, called me his wife, his betrothed before heaven, vowed eternal faith and constancy to me, and offered to fly with me to any part of the globe. At length, seeing that nothing could calm my distraction, he started up, laid his hand to his sword, and declared that he would instantly put an end to that existence which my resentment had now rendered miserable to him. His violence suspended for a time my agitations by adding terror to my other feelings. I caught hold of his arm, and now became a suppliant in my turn, begging that he would not further injure me by such a horrid outrage, and promising to compose my mind by penitence and prayer as soon as I was left alone, but upon this condition only, that he should never attempt to see me again, till it was possible for us to meet, for life, without a crime. We parted, mutually wretched, in agony and despair. The horror with which I was seized the moment he had quitted me is not to be conceived without guilt. I lost that firmness now which had hitherto borne up my spirits under all my sufferings. Purity, the only resource in affliction, was now fled forever from my breast. I felt the full weight of all my ills, and what appeared before oppression on my innocence seemed now but justice on my crime. I rejoiced I had no sister. I thought of you, my brother, of my dear mother too, and with a shower of tears took leave of these fond names forever. I stood in life alone, severed from all connection. The sustaining hope of being again restored to honor and society, like the fair fruit that sprang in pandemonium, now turned to bitter ashes. What had I further to do with the world? Alas, I had already forfeited all protection. My last night's dream, say rather vision, stared me full in the face and upbraided me with the recollection of a maxim I had often heard my parent saint deliver, that we should ever consider those persons we had a respect for as present when absent, and as living when dead. I kneeled down and strove to pray, but could not. I felt myself in a state of reprobation, and was almost fallen into despair. I had no stay, no support, no resource in store. In all the other ills of life, heaven suffers us not to be afflicted beyond our strength, but wretchedness with guilt exceeds the scheme of providence. 
I then endeavored to rise, but was not able to stand. My exhausted spirits failed me, and I sunk down again upon the floor, where I continued some time in a state of stupidity, till my maids opening the door of the antechamber warned me to disguise my disturbance. I concealed my distraction as well as I could, by keeping my face turned from her as much as possible, and for the first time felt what an irksome thing it is to have anything to hide. The storm continued all the night with extreme violence, but the thunder and lightning did not alarm me as they had done on the evening before. I had now a louder monitor in my breast than the one, and with what open arms and welcome greetings should I then have embraced the other. How long Sir Thomas stayed at Hartland I cannot tell, for I never ventured abroad from that time, even to take a walk in the gardens, and he behaved with so much honour as to obey my last injunction to him, by not seeking any further opportunity, as far as I could learn, of seeing me again, or even of attempting to write a line to me, lest it might, as it certainly would, have been intercepted. So that I began soon to reconcile myself to my present situation, by making that solitude and confinement a voluntary penance, which I had hitherto looked upon as the severest infliction, considering it but as a convent, within the sequestered walls of which, I should then most assuredly have concealed myself from the world, had I been at liberty to have chosen my situation. I conformed myself entirely to a true monastic state for a time, by spending my days in fasts, in contrition, and in prayer, hoping that my sorrows would ere long have ended with my life. But I was, alas, too soon convinced that fate had not yet emptied all its quiver against me, for I had the inexpressible shock to find that I was likely to bring an innocent being into the world, at once to prove and share my infamy. I shall not attempt to describe the agonies of my mind upon this discovery. I must live, to have endeavoured still to solicit that death which my despair had tempted me to wish so ardently for before, while it related only to myself, would have been a double guilt in my present circumstances. I must therefore submit to become more miserable, in order to render myself less criminal. In such a miserable and forlorn situation, what measure was left me to pursue? There was indeed but one, and let the fatal necessity of it plead my excuse. I had refused to fly with Sir Thomas when he begged it on his knees. I could not yield deliberate consent to vice, or think of delivering myself over to a life of profligacy. But I must now temporize with guilt, I must now extricate myself from my present difficulty, shame, and danger at any expense, though with a determined purpose to cover my head immediately after, in some severe convent, there to endure the harshest penances, and hide me from the world forever. In the confusion and distraction I was in at that time, I could not frame any certain scheme for my relief. Besides, that point depended on the concurrence of another. I therefore wrote a letter to Sir Thomas, entreating the favour of him to come to me directly, upon a business of consequence to us both, and in which something more than my own life was the object of my anxiety. I did not know where Sir Thomas then was, but ventured to direct it to him, according to my former address from Bath, to his father's house in Bloomsbury Square. But when I had sealed this billet, a new difficulty occurred to me, how I could possibly get it conveyed to him. All connection between me and the world had been cut off from the moment of my commitment. 
my duenna had at first refused to let a letter from me even to my mother be carried to the post and told me frankly then that any directed to me were ordered to be returned from thence unopened to mr w the danger pressed and some attempt must be hazarded i recollected that there was a labourer who generally worked in the garden and appeared to be a person of rational intelligence i therefore went out to him and gave the letter into his hands with a bribe of five guineas which fee i promised to double for him on his return with an answer and hinted to him all proper cautions with regard to the secrecy of his commission i instructed the messenger to make some pretence or other of private business for absenting himself from his service and desired him not to attempt to deliver the answer of my letter to me till he should meet me alone in the garden i had a full view of it from the windows of my apartment and watched with the utmost impatience for his appearance again from the moment that i thought it possible for him to have returned how much did i envy during this anxious interval the infinitely preferable state of the meanest peasant i heard whistling carelessly across the domain who enjoyed peace and competence without a consciousness of guilt or the fear of detection at length i had the satisfaction to see my courier arrive and waiting till i perceived the coast clear i stole out to him and had the pleasure to receive a letter from sir thomas filled with the tenderest professions of love and the fullest assurances of honour he promised to be with me that very evening just at nightfall and desired i would meet him at the end of the grove near the house i was punctual to time and place and found him also exact to his appointment he was full of transport at the sight of me but i was not in a fit disposition of mind to attend to his ecstasies i begged he would compose himself while i looked about through every avenue to see that no prying eye was near to observe our motions then led him with fearful hands and trembling steps into the house and we retired upstairs together to my apartment as i had not used myself to eat suppers ever since my confinement in this place i always dismissed my attendant as soon as she had left candles lighted on my table choosing to sit up alone most part of the nights employed in reading musing and working so that i was under no sort of apprehension of being at any time interrupted in my privacy as soon as we had got into the room sir thomas attempted to catch me in his arms but i started from his embrace i told him that we were neither of us in time place or circumstances to admit of unwarrantable liberties that i had desired this meeting to implore the assistance of his friendship and honour only not to receive his love the least overture of which as i had declared to him before i was firmly resolved to oppose till such a time if ever that happy era should arrive as might entitle him to ask and me to grant the unreserved completion of his wishes with true humanity and generous acquiescence he immediately desisted from all further importunity as he guessed the situation i was in from the hint in my letter and therefore concluded what the purport of my summons tended to he had the tenderness and politeness not to wait for any further explanation of the matter but immediately proposed to me that we should directly abscond together to some distant part of the kingdom from whence we might sail over to the continent and there secrete ourselves for life in some retired spot safe from pursuit or inquiry adding that he should not look upon this retreat to be an exile to himself as he might well be said to carry his country along with him while he was in possession of all he loved or valued in it i had no other resource left me now and the choice is soon made where there remains but one option 
I rendered the most grateful acknowledgments to him for the generosity of his offer, which I readily accepted of, told him that I, from that moment, resigned my fate into his hands, and that he should thenceforward be the sole arbiter of my destiny, accountable to himself alone for all my future weal or woe. He kneeled, took my hand, kissed and bathed it with his tears. You do not, I hope, my dear brother, imagine me so devoid of sensibility as not to suppose that I then felt the disgrace which my misconduct must entail upon an honoured parent, nor were you absent, Edward, from my thoughts. But let me say this in my excuse, that I then flattered myself my flight, or rather the motives for it, might remain forever secret, and that living in a foreign land under a feigned name, my person might possibly never be discovered, and in that case those dear connections could be as little involved in my reproach as they were concerned in my guilt. Here ends all the reflections I shall ever make. The following part of my unhappy story, while I relate it, harrows up my soul, congeals my faculties, and impels me to wild distraction or to reprobate despair. When we had thus settled the article of our flight together, we agreed further upon the manner and circumstances of it. Sir Thomas was to retire immediately to his inn, before my garrison should be shut up for the night, and send off an express to Exeter for a post-chase, with relays of horses to be ready the next evening at the further end of the grove, where I promised to meet him at the close of the day, from thence to launch into a world unknown, without a matron, without a guardian, for I had lost my innocence. Just as I was rising up to convey him out of the house, I heard some hasty steps passing through the antechamber, the door of my room was suddenly burst open, and I saw Mr. W. enter, with a pistol in each hand. Sir Thomas laid hold of his sword, but before he could draw it, received a bullet in his breast. He fell, and, do I survive to tell it, I heard his last groan, and saw him expire at my feet. I heard, nor saw, no more, but falling senseless on his lifeless bosom, was for a while released from agonies too great for sufferance. But my miseries were not so soon to have an end. I was dragged back again to life by the still cruel hands of Mr. W., who assisted my maid to raise me from the floor and lay me on the bed. The first use I made of my returning sense was to rise upon my knees, and with uplifted hands implore his mercy to terminate my misfortunes and my life together. He looked as if he would do so, but, turning from me, cried, "'No, thou shalt be reserved for more exemplary vengeance.' and walked immediately out of the room, taking the maid along with him, but leaving the discharged pistol by me on the bed. With my reason, my horror returned. Let compassion but reflect on my situation. Barbarity itself must soften into humanity at the thought. Loaded with infamy, encompassed with misery, entombed, as it were, alive with the dead, and gazing horribly, without the relief even of tears, on the sad victim of my ill-starred destiny. At length, frantic with grief, with terror and despair, unknowing what I did and without any purposed end, I rushed down the back stairs and issued through the private door from that accursed mansion. Fear gave wings to my speed, yet at the same time retarded my flight, for though I ran as fast as it was possible, I frequently stopped, for several minutes, to listen to every sound I heard, and sometimes clambered over high ditches, and laid myself flat on the ground to prevent my being seen, in case I was pursued, though the night was so dark that I could almost feel an object before I saw it. My haste was urged by instinct merely, 
determined to no point, but like a frightened animal I fled from danger without direction in my course. My mind was all the while in the state of a dream. I knew of no asylum. I could frame no purpose. At length, exhausted by fatigue and oppressed with sorrow, I sat myself down in the corner of a field, surrounded by a little coppice, just high enough to conceal me from the view of passengers. Here nature, till now restrained, still active for its own relief, began to release the utterances of grief, and at the very moment that I felt my heart going to burst asunder, my tears broke forth, and I found myself at liberty to express my sufferings in moanings and exclamations. This gave me ease at first, and I therefore indulged it for a while, till I began to apprehend towards day that the loudness of my complaints might possibly reach the ear of some traveller or villager, and betray the situation of my concealment, and the particular circumstances of my story. But yet I could not silence my cries and lamentations. I became desperate of all human succour, and thought that even the hands of cruelty might relieve me from the effects of my own distraction by putting an end to my life, without any additional guilt of mine. At length my voice was heard, and answered by one who came rustling through the coppice, and in a soft, slender tone cried out, "'Where are you? Who are you, and what ails you?' The sound at first alarmed me, till I was struck with the appearance of a beautiful boy of about seven years old, at a little distance, who, as soon as he spied me, came running up and told me that his mamma had been awakened in bed with my cries, had rung her bell, and ordered her servant to go seek the person in grief, but that he got out of the house before him, was glad he had found me first, and begged I would go home along with him directly, out of that nasty cold place, to make his mamma's mind easy." The prettiness of the child's person, with the good-natured impatience and anxiety it expressed about my situation, charmed me in that instant of distress and woe, till he came up close to me, when I felt a sudden shock at the sight of him. He seemed to be a son of Mr. W.'s. He had every feature of his face. I started and trembled. However, I soon recovered myself, concluding that such an idea must be owing merely to the strong impression which his countenance had made on my mind at our last interview and which a terrified imagination might possibly have transferred a likeness of, to any object, viewed in the uncertain light of a just opening dawn. I therefore embraced the lovely child, and walked away with him, leaning on the servant's arm, who was then come up, to a neat cottage, which was but a few yards from the spot I had been found in. I was received at the door of the house, by a lady of genteeler appearance than one could naturally expect to have met with under so mean a roof who with a voice of sweetness welcomed me to what hospitality her circumstances could afford, and taking me by the hand, led me into her best apartment. I sat down on the first chair I could reach, and begged for a glass of water to prevent my fainting, which I apprehended from my feelings might probably soon happen. The room we were in was soon lighted up with fire and candles, the blaze of which offended my tender sight, already dimmed by the darkness of the foregoing night and weakened by my tears which prevented me from being able to view objects distinctly enough at first. But when the agitation of my spirits had been somewhat abated, and that my eyes had recovered their strength a little, I perceived the lady to be a person of about four-and-twenty years of age, and extremely handsome, but seeming much impaired in her appearance by grief or sickness. Here I began to shudder again, for the resemblance between her and Mr. W. struck me more forcibly than it had done before in the child. There could be no equivocation in this instance. 
her features marked the likeness stronger, and the clear light I had then an opportunity of viewing her by put the similitude beyond a doubt. This mystery alarmed me. I feared I had fallen into dangerous hands, but it would have been doubly improper to have asked for a solution of this riddle, on account either of the seeming to pry into her secret or the hazard of betraying my own. I therefore concealed my surprise, though I could not avoid showing my uneasiness, which she perceiving, but without suspecting the cause, and imputing solely to my misfortunes and fatigue, which she seemed to think were sufferings I had not been much accustomed to, entreated me to repose myself on the bed that was in the chamber as long as I pleased, without fear of interruption, till I should be inclined to accept of any other kind of comfort or refreshment that might be within the compass of her poor means to afford me. The voice of kindness to an oppressed heart at once soothes and gives vent to its sufferings. I answered only with my tears. She rose, and taking her child by the hand, said that she was too well acquainted with sorrow to attempt to restrain its course, or think it capable of any other relief than time and prayer, adding that I need be under no manner of apprehension that any curiosity of hers should prompt her to inquire into my story, as the measure of her own misfortunes was too full already to admit the addition of another's grief without the power of alleviating it. She retired immediately without waiting for a reply. Being now sheltered from all outward ills and violences, the distraction of my mind began to feel itself under the less control. Despair and frenzy now triumphed over my reason and religion. I looked about for some instrument of destruction to put an end to my miserable existence, and snatching at a sword that hung unsheathed over the chimney, I had just set the hilt of it to the ground, when my guardian hostess, attentive to my motions, running into the room to see what had occasioned my disturbance, had just time enough to strike the point aside, so that I fell unhurt upon the floor. "'Oh, stop the hand of rashness!' she exclaimed, "'nor dare to limit mercy. "'He who severely tries, as amply can reward the patient sufferer. "'Let thy proud heart bow to his high decrees, "'and learn to bear thy burden with submission.' "'While thus she spoke, I gazed upon her with a silent awe, "'and thought her more than human. "'She raised me from the ground with looks of tenderness, "'and thus proceeded. "'That sorrow has beset,' and has subdued you, I can well perceive. Alas, what is your strength or mine opposed to its rude grasp? But wherefore then should we rely upon ourselves when offered aid bends from high heaven for our acceptance and bids our weak humanity be strong in its almighty power? I sunk again upon my knees before her, and cried out, I have no hope in heaven or earth. Thou messenger of grace, thy proffered aid is vain. I am an outcast from society, nor would even your charity extend itself to such a wretch as me were you to know my crimes. I will not hear them then, she answered quick, but sure there is no guilt except despair that may not hope for pardon. Remove that gloomy vice from your sad heart, and penitence shall heal the wounds of your offense, and bid your bleeding bosom be at peace. By slow degrees, this more than woman, this heaven-instructed comforter, calmed my distracted soul, and reasoned down my frenzy. I passed my word to her not to attempt my life, and I have kept it, have waited till the lingering, though sure bane of human health, unceasing sorrow, shall release my promise, and lay me gently in the silent grave. As soon as my mind had become somewhat more composed, I began to reflect upon the circumstances of my late misfortune. 
I thought with horror on the impiety of neglecting a duty toward the Manes, of the unhappy sacrifice of my wayward destiny. I felt like an accomplice in the guilt if I should not endeavor to rescue the remains of that dear and unfortunate object from the still-continued barbarity of his murderer, and attempt to procure it the rights of Christian, at least of human, sepulture. The idea that first occurred to me upon this occasion was to fly off directly to the inn at Hartland, to Captain R., for Sir Thomas had told me that his friend and confidant had accompanied him now as before, and to have acquainted him with the fatal catastrophe of my story. But how to appear before a stranger, or indeed any person whatsoever, under the sensation of conscious guilt and public infamy? Besides, might I not happen to be detected there, and possibly have involved a third person in my complicated misfortune? However, I contrived to qualify these scruples by the subterfuge of writing a note to him, containing only these few words. Your friend is, alas, no more. He lies murdered at Castle W. I do not mean by this notice to call even for justice against his assassin, but only hope that your humanity and friendship may be able to defend his hapless course from any further indignity or outrage. To this billet I did not subscribe any name, but got my kind hostess to send it off immediately to the inn by one of the villagers, who was instructed not to say from whence he came, nor to await an answer. This most excellent woman, so far from desiring to dive into the secret of my distress, made it a point, rather, that I should not reveal it, whenever she heard me begin to mourn. But in order, as she said, to convince me that mine was not a partial lot, and that she had herself severely tasted of the bitter cup, she would relate some of those very uncommon misfortunes which had attended her through life, and which might perhaps, in some measure, reconcile me to my own. But first she insisted that I should endeavor to recruit my strength and spirits with food and rest, as the preserving the proper temperament of the body was certainly one requisite toward restoring the health of the mind. I accepted her hospitality, and breakfasted on tea, but could not eat. She did not press me, she was reasonable in all things. Entreaty in my situation would have but added to my fatigue and increased my disgust. She thought that sleep might, for a time, better supply the place of food. She therefore obliged me to undress myself and go into bed, where, after having closed the windows, as it was now full day, and removed every implement of mischief out of the room, she left me to repose myself, if possible. I did what I could for that purpose— I owed that duty to the infant yet unborn, and was solicitous to preserve that part of myself at least that was innocent. But my sorrows kept me long awake, till nature, taking advantage of my weakness, at length delivered my body over to sleep, though without composing my mind. For my disturbed imagination pursued me still throughout my slumber, presenting visions of slaughter, gibbets, and executions to my tortured fancy all the while which instead of yielding me any manner of refreshment, by frequent starts awoke me, adding the pains of labor to my other ills, which brought on a miscarriage towards the evening. My humane hostess attended on me with the kindness and tenderness of a sister, supplied me with cordials, kept everything quiet about me, and would sit up all night by my bedside, notwithstanding every opposition I could make to it. The next morning she prevailed on me to take some sustenance, after which I claimed her promise of letting me into the history of her life, which, however, I did not do to satisfy an idle curiosity, 
but thought that the circumstances of her recital might perhaps amuse my mind from too fixed an attention to my own sorrows, and that the gentle murmurs of her voice, with the monotony of narrative, might possibly have conduced to slumber. But judge of my amazement, when she began by telling me that she was the daughter, the only child, of Mr. W. I was near betraying myself. I could not conceal my surprise, but cried out, "'It is impossible! You cannot be his offspring!' She calmly answered, "'You know him, then,' and without inquiring further, thus proceeded. "'But as the unhappy Maria is come now to a pause in her misfortunes, let us, my dear sister, take this opportunity of resting a little ourselves after the fatigue and horror of her story before we enter upon another.' I confess that when I came to this part of it, I rejoiced to think she was dead. My humanity felt less from the reflections that her suffering were at an end. As we are affected more by the distress we see than by what we only hear of, so is our compassion always stronger for the living sorrow than the dead one. Yet one must still weep for Hecuba. The wind has become fair for this narrative, but my anxiety has been increased at not hearing from you before it changed. Adieu. F. Cleveland End of Letter 66 Part 2